0: Welcome back to Drunkenly Paranormal, your dose of debauchery in a dastardly drunken podcast. I'm your host, Salem, and I'm joined as always by a Chico who helped inspire Topa Chico to develop their hard seltzer. Harlem, how are you today?
1: Good, man. Doing good. Crazy day at work, but I'm here ready to dive into this case.
0: Indeed, you are. We are not one of those uh, podcasters I like to fuck about at the beginning of the episode. Uh, but perhaps, you know, you're joining us for the first time, and you're wondering what we're all about. Well, we're the paranormal investigators that believe an open, expanded, and possibly inebriated mind is necessary to unlock life's mysteries. With that spirit in mind, we like to investigate with a cold drink in our hand to strengthen our courage and raise, well, certainly our spirits, but maybe others as well. Our episodes will go something like this. We'll introduce a case, present some background about it, review some history with respect to the case, then we'll turn our attention to evidence, and debate the merits of that evidence, as well as the finer points of what alcohol brings to paranormal investigations. Like true gentlemen and scholars, we'll discuss this evidence, and perhaps even make suggestions on how we could conduct the investigation in person. And then at the end, we'll vote to decide if we're just drunk, or if we think something paranormal's going on. Now Harlan, for the last couple of weeks, you've been asking me to cover a case about serial killers. Since serial killers are definitely real and not at all paranormal, looking into one on their own would not be inherently paranormal, which is the point of this podcast. Also considering that at times on this podcast we like to make jokes and laugh and make light of things that others might think are scary, I was hesitant to cover a serial killer uh, out of worry that it might be insensitive to the victim's memory, their surviving family members, or to the communities that they terrorize. That being said, I know you wanted to cover serial killers, so I had to look uh, for where serial killers intersected with the possibility of the paranormal. Alright, hell yeah, this is going to sound good. Lo and behold, I found a case. This week's episode will be a little bit different, as, uh, as in the first part of the episode, I'll forego my usual jokes, quips, and asides to show respect to the victims. I will not, however, show any respect... For the subject of this case, because he was a murdering piece of shit. This week on Drunkenly Paranormal, we'll be doing a deep dive into the life and crimes, and later possibly paranormal home, of Herb Baumeister, one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. Do you know anything about him?
1: Baumeister. Herb Baumeister, yeah. Never heard of it. What's he look like? Don't man? don't don't look up. I just want to see a picture of the guy.
0: Okay, yeah. So look, look him up. He looks like just like an average dude. Oh, he like, kind
1: of looks like a teacher. Uh, or like a news anchor guy.
0: Yeah. So you ready to dive into this?
1: Yeah, let's hear it, man. I'm excited.
0: The story begins when Herb is born on the 7th of April, 1947. He was born to Herbert Baumeister who is a prominent anesthesiologist, and Elizabeth Baumeister, who was a stay-at-home mom. Herb is the oldest of four children. For the first 10 years of his life, he lived a normal life. It's an uneventful childhood, he's carefree, he's outside playing with other kids. No issues, no red flags, nothing. However, as he grew into a teenager, his behavior began to change. Herb began to do things that his peers would label bizarre and erratic. He began to develop an obsession with death and decay that would motivate young Herb to pick up dead animals and birds he found on the side of the road.
1: Oh fuck, what do you do with them?
0: And play with them.
1: Oh yeah, that's weird.
0: He would even take them to school and leave them on his teacher's desk. Oh, that is fucked. Uh... There is even one reported event where he was caught pissing on a teacher's desk.
1: Okay, I mean I, 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 I've
0: been there. You peed on a teacher's desk? No, but I've seen students do it. Okay, so it's not that weird that a kid pisses on a desk. It's not that much of a red flag. Uh,
1: no, it's definitely a huge red flag. The only kid I've known who just whip out his dick and pee on purpose was, um, uh, pretty fucking crazy.
0: Okay. Okay. Well.
1: Definitely, when kids also put like X's for the eyes. That's when you know there's something serious.
0: Yeah, that, sound, that sounds like someone. something you do when they're planning on killing someone. During this time where his behavior is getting really bizarre and his fixation with death uh, magnifies, it starts to take a toll on his school performance. He begins to fail classes, distract other students in class, and become an all-around problem.
1: Yeah, it sounds like he's got a lot of behavior issues.
0: Yeah. A friend reported that Herb once said something strange to him. Herb apparently said, I wonder what it would taste like to drink human urine. You ever met anyone that's like, I want to know what piss tastes like? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I haven't
1: met him, but uh, Bear grows. Yeah, but he, he, he
0: wasn't, <laughs> he, that's, he drank his own piss. He wasn't like, I wonder what this will taste like. I watched that episode. He was definitely like, this is going to be awful, but I don't have any other water, so I'm going to drink my own piss. <laughs> like, oh, God.
1: I would never do that, man. Thank God I'm not going yeah. <laughs> to... And I'll pray to God, you know, that never happens. That never happens, yeah. yeah.
0: So, something is clearly going on in young Herb's life. And this is where his slide south begins. Clearly realizing something's going on in Herb's mind, his teachers reached out to his parents. They explained that they'd noticed concerning changes in their son and told them that they'd opted to have Herb psychiatrically evaluated. Herb was diagnosed with schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder. Wow. Now, after receiving this diagnosis... Sounds very familiar. Yeah. uh, Now, after receiving this diagnosis, would you think that the parents would have supported their son and tried to get him treatment to help stabilize his moods?
1: Okay, what did they do to do that? Like medicine, taking him to, like, a facility?
0: So it's a great question, because in the the early 1960s, the, the big... Uh, treatment option is electroconvulsive therapy. Oh, Jesus. Which doesn't actually help... Were they electrocuting this guy? Yeah, yeah. Effectively, they just shock you to the point where, like, it doesn't help you deal with schizophrenia or multiple personalities. It just, like, zaps your brains to the point where you're, like, docile. You're not going to hurt anyone. So it's, like, sterilizing your mind. Oh, jeez. Uh, now, one one of the podcasts, uh, I, I listened to in preparation for this case said that there might have been another reason why his parents didn't seek treatment other than that they were pretty barbaric and rudimentary and it was the fact that uh, his dad being an anesthesiologist didn't want anyone to know. Wait, he was an anesthesiologist his, and his dad or just no, his dad? No, just his dad. Okay. But his dad, he's an anesthesiologist so he's rich, he's you know high in the community because people are like, oh you're a doctor, we respect you. And he didn't want to take her for treatment uh, because it would it would look bad on the family if one of them were being treated for mental health problems. I heard that in one of the podcasts that I listened to, like I said in preparation. I I couldn't remember which it was, so that may not be factual because I couldn't, couldn't remember which podcast it was, couldn't check their sources. But what we do know for certain is that being electrocuted was basically the only treatment available at the time. So... I I can understand parents' reluctance to do that. Despite the problems that Her was having in school, he soldiers on and manages to graduate high school with good enough grades to get into Indiana University. College proves a poor fit for him and he drops out after one semester. Later his father kind of pushes him and motivates him, hey, you gotta go back to school. So he returns again in 1967, but drops out again after one semester. It was during his return in 1967 that Herb met Juliana Julie Sater, a high school teacher and part-time student at the university. The pair hit it off right away. They really seemed to get along, they had similar political views, they had the same hobbies, they even had the same goals of one day owning their own business. By November 1971, Herb and Julia tied the knot. They get married. Meanwhile, Herb was still battling with his mental illness. Uh, When he would have particularly rough episodes, Julie would do what she could to help and stood loyally by her husband. Just six months into her marriage, or into their marriage, however, Herb Sr., so the anesthesiologist, uh, has his son committed to a mental hospital. No details as to why, but Julie is unfazed. She waits loyally for two months for him to get out and return to her. Now, like I said before, Herb's not a college graduate. So his, his job prospects without a skilled trade are looking kind of not great. Right. But his dad pulls some strings um, and gets him a job at a paper at the Indianapolis Star as a copy boy. Now, a copy boy is basically like the bitch. He gets coffee. like He copies things and brings them to people. He brings people coffee. But despite that, Herb works really, really hard. He gets into the job. Um, he's apparently like really, really concerned with getting approval from his supervisors to the point where if he doesn't get it, he's upset and he gets angry. Uh, his coworkers also are not a big fan of him because he's both trying too hard in his job and also trying too hard to be their buddy. Um, so Her- after a while, Herb is like, you know what? Fuck this. I've had enough. He quits. He then gets a job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, And here, again, he works really, really hard. He throws himself into the job and eventually works his way up to become program director. However, in 1984, he was evidently fired for pissing on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana, Robert Orr. So, he likes to pee on things, is what I'm getting so far. Teachers' desks, now the governor. Seems like he's got an issue with authority. Yep. At this job, too, Herb is described as an oddball by his coworkers. He was often ostracized and avoided because they found his behavior to be both volatile and unpredictable. After being fired, Herbert's in trouble with the law. He was arrested for a drunken hit and run, for stealing a friend's car, as well. But somehow managed to like not do any jail time, no charges stick. He avoids trouble. Now Julie doesn't really balk at this behavior or the fact that he was fired for pissing on letters. But then again. We don't know if he actually told her. From 1979 to 1984, when Herb's working these jobs, they started a family. Uh, they had three children: Marin in 79, Eric in 81, and Emily in 1984. I think Marin is probably like Maria or something, and I mistyped it, so that's my fault, but I think two daughters and a son. Okay. With Herb out of work, Julie went back to teaching to keep the family afloat while Herb served as a full time dad. Herb evidently showed an entirely different personality with his children than he did at work. He wasn't volatile, he wasn't erratic, he wasn't flying off the handle. He was apparently patient, or, <laughs> patient, patient caring, and a doting father. Not long after, so I guess he's only a stay at home dad for a little while, he returns to work. He gets a job at a thrift store works hard, he learns the trade and then he decides that I'm going to open my own thrift store. So he goes to his mom for a loan and she gives him four grand to open up a thrift store. And remember how earlier I said that the the couple had this shared dream of both owning Mm -hmm. their own business. Mm -hmm. Right. So Julie's his partner. I think his mom agrees, yeah, I'll give you the four grand startup loan Um, but your partner's here. So the pair open up the Save-A-Lot thrift store. It is an overnight success. I couldn't find any hard numbers on, on how much money they were they were making, but pretty quickly, like within a year, they're able to open a second location um, and are routinely making $50,000 donations to children's charities. Now, to put that into perspective, because this is fifty grand in 1988,
1: right? All right, that's a good chunk of change.
0: That's roughly $112,000 today. Wow, Their business is doing so well and they're bringing in so much money that they decide to celebrate their achievement of starting a successful business, they want to buy a house. So they shop, they shop around and they manage to buy a sprawling 18-acre property with a giant house on it called Fox Hollow Farms in 1991. The home has lots of bedrooms, a big kitchen, a giant dining room, and even a pool in the basement. It also had a barn that either eventually would or already did have an apartment on the top floor. They paid a million dollars for that home. So just, again, to give you an idea of of how much money they're making, they can make mortgage payments on a million dollar home. Wow. Or to put it in today's uh, perspective, 2.2 million dollars. Now, I've got a few pictures of the home here if you want to take a look. Uh I believe they were taken in 2014 so they're fairly modern. The first picture is this magnificent looking house. Uh like I said before it's sprawling so it's real long and drawn out. Looks like it's maybe one story with like a lofted second story at one point. I don't know. What's what's your impression of it?
1: Definitely one story, maybe a little bit of a loft going on above. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, the, like a triangle kind of loft.
0: Yeah, it's got those triangle-type roofs. I guess most roofs are like that. A lot of windows. It's
1: a nice home,
0: though. Yeah, a ground-floor a ground floor basement with sliding glass doors by the look of it. That's probably where the pool is. It's a really gorgeous home. Uh, the second photo, I believe, is the barn. Uh, obviously taking a different time of year. Is this attached to the house? No, it's separate from the house, but there isn't a second-floor apartment. In that above barn. the barn. Yeah, yeah. I, I want you to remember that because that's really relevant later. Uh, and then the next couple photos are just like a real nice bathroom that's in the home. Uh, a really elegant looking study with, you know, lots of bookshelves, uh, big oak desk, leather chairs. Wow. Uh, the third photo. Like a triangle room. Yeah, the third photo appears. It's probably that lofted bedroom that we spotted. We were saying, oh, there's probably something lofted here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So nice, not,
1: nice home. Yeah, it's it's like a five cool, star. Yeah,
0: it's a gorgeous home. When I was trying to look up pictures of this home, I stumbled across uh, an Airbnb. Not long after moving into the home, however, cracks are starting to show in Julie and Herb's marriage. Remember how difficult Herb's previous coworkers found him to be like around and work with? Yeah. Well, now his wife's working with him. Now his wife's working with him. In this new thrift store business uh, that his wife is a co-owner in, Herb apparently treated her only as an employee. The strain of working together took such a toll on the marriage that Julie begins taking the kids to Herb's mother's condo in Lake Wawasee. Herb said he was happy, like, take the kids, I'll stay here, I'll manage the business, I'll look out for the store, everything's fine. Except, he wouldn't do any of that. According to testimonies from employees at Save-A-Lot stores, Herb was soon careless at work and neglectful of his duties. Oftentimes, he didn't bother to show up for ships. Even when he did, he was an asshole with customers. Employees quit, customers found the atmosphere unwelcoming, and the business began to fail. Herb, remember, he's, he's the only one living at home, so he had the run of the house. You would think... Since he had a reputation at work for running this clean and organized business, that his home would be the same, right? Yeah. It's not. It'd be a mess. The bedrooms are a mess. He's putting no effort into maintaining the 18 acres. He's just letting it grow and go wild. Uh, The only room that Heard really seemed any at all interested in was the pool room in the basement. He made sure to keep the bar fully stocked, which I don't think is weird. But what was weird was he dressed up mannequins around the swimming pool to create the illusion of a big, banging pool party going on at all times. Here are some photos. to show you what I mean. In this first photo, you can clearly see a mannequin wearing a wig and a red sweater standing behind the bar like they're making themselves a drink. In the second photo... uh, There's a mannequin dressed up like a sailor in a naval white, like, summer uniform. Yeah. And in the third, you've got a completely naked mannequin that looks like it's, like, doing stretches on the pool side. Also important to note, it's a naked male mannequin. That might sound odd right now, but I'll tell you why that's important in a second. Oh, God. When Julie and the kids were away... Herb began to hit gay bars in downtown Indianapolis. It's not exactly clear when he started doing this. It's even very likely that he started doing this as early as 1986. You see, Herb... Is that before his daughters were even born? No, I think the last daughter was born in 84. Okay, so after his daughters, all right. So it, it seems very likely that he did, like I mentioned... Uh, it also seems like Herb was hiding something from his wife. Herb was probably gay, yeah. or at least bisexual. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't want his wife to know, and he was using his family to hide his true self. Julie would later report that even though they were married roughly 25 years, they only consummated their marriage six times. So they only had sex wow, six times. So they time. had three kids? Yeah, so that's pretty good... Oh, there, bro. Yeah, that's like fifty percent. I know a yeah. lot of people struggle to get pregnant, so that's pretty impressive, and it's on its own. Uh, but something dark at the same time is starting to take place in Indianapolis. Beginning in nineteen ninety one, the same year that Herb moved into Fox Hollow Farm, that's an important date. So remember, nineteen ninety one. Young gay men, ages twenty to forty six, that were all the same ethnicity. They're all white. They're all built the same start going missing. It's about three years later in 1994 when a retired Marion County Sheriff named Virgil uh, Vandegrift was contacted by the family of one of the missing men, Alan Broussard, aged 28. Vandegrift ran a private investigation company that was asked to locate Alan. Alan had last been spotted leaving a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis. Days later, Roger Goodlett's mother contacted the same firm and reported her son was missing too. Again, he was last spotted leaving a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis in the same year, roughly about the same time. Now, Vandergriff is a hardworking detective and became obsessed with the case. Oh God, he's stealing multiple people. Yeah, around the same time. Around the same time. This is getting freaky. This is getting freaky. Uh, like I said, Vandergriff, hardworking detective. He's he's meticulous about his investigative process. So you begin spending evenings at the bars that these the people that were going missing, these two men, frequented. So, Vandegrift is he's hitting the same bars, he's chatting up patrons, and he's putting up missing posters of the two men. This effort soon yielded some results. He discovered that it just wasn't two young men that had gone missing, but it doesn't. Oh,
1: damn. Somebody's been busy.
0: Someone's been busy. In Vandegrift's mind, he's starting to see a pattern forming, and he knows at once... That these weren't just one-off disappearances, like 12 young men don't hit the same bar and then decide, I'm going to skip town. So he's starting to get the, sh- the idea that there's a serial killer preying on them, that's frequenting the same places, and that he's probably responsible for all of the missing men. Now at this point, Vandegrift feels like he's got a strong enough lead to go on, that he needs to contact the police. But they're like, we're not interested. We, we, don't, want, we don't want to do anything about this.
1: Well, it's the what, 80s?
0: Early, mid 90s, mid 90s. Yeah,
1: I'm sure they don't give a fuck about gay people then.
0: You're exactly right. They don't care at all, and they tell him, they tell Vandegrift, rather, that these guys probably just ran off as a result of, to quote, their gay lifestyle. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Nailed that one. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's easy to spot prejudice when it's right. On a page in front of
1: you. I'm mm-hmm. not even reading. I'm
0: just listening. I, I know. Well, like, it's very clear that the police aren't doing their job here. They're like, oh, you know, we don't care about these people. Yeah. It's a dick, it's a total dick move. But anyways, when Vandegrift uh, visited the police, he learned about an ongoing investigation they had into multiple murders of gay men from Ohio that began in 1989 but stopped in 1990. Now, for our non American listeners, or perhaps the less geography inclined listeners, Indiana and Ohio share an eastern border. Okay? And on that border is a highway called I 70. It runs south okay. along the border of both states. It's also important to note that the bodies stopped appearing along I 70 the same or the year before. So remember, the last bodies dumped in 1990. I didn't know he was dumping bodies. Well, I mean... they don't I know just knew he
1: was kidnapping people. He hadn't... They get don't... Eyes. So
0: that's, that's what I'm trying to draw here. Like, there's one serial killer who's targeting gay men and dumping their bodies on I-70 who stops in 1990. Okay, so what's he doing with these gay men? He's killing them. How? We're going to get to that. But what I'm trying to draw is line up here is bodies stop appearing on I-70 in 1990. Herb buys Fox Hollow Farm in 1991 is built or bought. So, effectively what I'm trying to say is that if Herb was also responsible or let's say Herb is responsible for these it's four men that are dumped on I-70 it's very likely that you know before he bought the farm he had no place to dump bodies. By 1991 he does. He's got his farm so he can dump bodies there. I gave a little bit away there because.
1: I'm sorry. Repeat that.
0: Okay, so in 19 up until 1990, so from '89 to '90, so for two years, somebody is preying on gay men. Right. And dumping their body along the highway. Okay. Herb and Julia buy Fox Hollow Farms in '91. Right. So the year after, bodies stop showing up. What's interesting to note about those bodies that were dumped on i seventy is they were all last seen in Indianapolis hitting gay bars. So it's the same hunting ground that the first two guys went missing from. And the same dumping ground. And, well, a different dumping ground right now. But there are at least four bodies that were dumped along I-70 who were last seen coming out of those gay bars. Now, Vandegrift finds this very compelling but he's got really nothing to go on. Nothing really at this point to tie whoever he thinks is abducting people from the gay bars right now, and the four previous abductions that showed up dead on I seventy. His invest- investigation stalls. Around the same time, Herb's thirteen-year-old son Eric made a discovery at Fox Hollow Farm while playing in the woods of the uh, of the property. He finds a human skull. On the property? On the property. On Fox Hollow Farms. So he picks it up and he brings it into the house and shows his mom. His mom's freaked out. So she goes, show me where you found this thing. And he leads her over to the spot and they find a full human skeleton. Oh boy. Now, when Julie tells Herb about this, he kind of seems like it's not a big deal. So she's like, how is this not a big deal? Give me, why should we not be worried about this? What's going on? And Herb's like, it's not an actual body it's one of my dad's old anatomy skeletons what does that seem like a thin lie to you Uh,
1: how do you have one of your dad's old that's what I would be like yeah and
0: why is it in the woods when Julie asks him those two exact questions uh, he, he doesn't answer he's like evasive and for some reason Julie doesn't press the issue She's like, okay. Uh, and like I said earlier, she's very, very loyal to her. So if, if hers she like... She probably believed it. Yeah. It, so if, she's, if he's like, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it. She's like, okay. And that's the end of it. So she drops it. Meanwhile, Vandergriff is still searching for new leads. He's, he's got nothing. So he's, he gets the idea in his head. I'm going to retrace my previous steps in this investigation. So he returned to the same bars and nightclubs, and he interviews anyone he can, anyone new that he didn't get to interview before. At this point, someone who saw one of the missing posters contacts him. The man went by the pseudonym Tony. I don't know what his real name was, but in every source I looked at, he was just called Tony. Tony said he was certain that he'd spent time with the same person that was responsible for Roger Goodlett's disappearance. Tony said when he went to the police and the FBI, he was turned away. However, Vandegrift was willing to listen to his story. Tony tells Vandegrift that he noticed another man a couple weeks before that seemed fixated by the missing person poster of Roger Goodlitt. He was just staring up at the, the, the poster like he was fixed like he was in a trance. So Tony looks at the guy and to quote the source material, he sees something in his eyes. He doesn't specify what it was, but he's like, i got to talk to this guy. He knows something. So he walks up to him, and then the man staring at the poster introduces himself as Brian Smart. Smart claims to be a landscaper from Ohio, but when Tony tries to bring up Goodlet and why Smart is staring at the poster, Smart dodges the question. As the evening grows into the late hours of the night and the early hours of the morning, Smart invites Tony to join him for a swim at a property he's renovating. Smart tells him that the owners are away and that there is a nice swimming pool they can hang out in, in the basement. Remember, Foxhall Farms has a pool in the basement. Tony agrees and they climb into Smart's Buick, complete with Ohio license plates. Now, Tony was not familiar with Northern Indianapolis, so he's unsure where the house actually was. However, he could describe the area that the home was in to Vandegriff. And he said that a lot of the homes have, they look like horse ranches and they're very big homes. He could also recall a split rail fence that was affixed with a sign he could not fully read, but that said farm on it. The sign was on the driveway fence that bordered or the fence that boarded the driveway. Of the property that Smart drove into. Smart parks the car and the two of them proceed to the pool area where Tony notices mannequins are all set up. He offers Smart offers Tony a drink which Tony turns down. Smart then disappears and then reappears a few minutes later and he suddenly his demeanors change. He's way more talkative, he's kind of more alert, excited, he's bouncing from foot to foot. Tony suspects that Smart had just done a line of coke. So he'd gone off to do drugs. The two talk for a while before Smart brings up autoerotic asphyxiation. You know what that is, right? Who brings it up? Uh, Smart. Oh, God. Okay. So he brings up the idea of, like, choking yourself while you masturbate. Tony agrees to uh, choke Smart with a bit of hose that was around the pool while he pleasures himself. When Smart finishes, he then asks Tony if he wanted to try it. And again, Tony goes along with it. Except as Smart starts to choke him, Tony realizes that Smart isn't going to stop. It's way too tight. He can't breathe. So thinking fast, Tony fakes passing out. When he does, Smart then releases the hose. And Tony kind of slumps forward. And Smart kind of backs off a few paces. That's when Tony opens his eyes. And when Smart sees that Tony's eyes are open, he's clearly freaked out. He's flushed. He's panicky. Uh, and Smart tells him that, sorry, I'm acting weird. It was just, I was scared because you passed out. I didn't think, you know, when, when you passed out, I got scared. It's important to note, and a sorry for the aside, that Tony likely wasn't choked to death and had the presence of mind to like fake passing out. Uh, because he didn't take the drink that Smart offered him in that moment. And I'm, I suppose I was a poor aside, because I'll explain the relevance of that later. Smart, again, clearly frustrated flustered, he offers to drive Tony back to the club where they met, they met which Tony accepts. As, as Tony stepping out of the car, uh, Smart is like, hey, you know, why don't you meet me a week from now? And Tony's like, sure, sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but Tony never reaches out. At this point, Vandegrift asks Tony if he'd be willing to lure Smart out so that the private eye could follow them back to the place where he took them on their first meeting. Tony agrees. He contacts Smart. They set up a meeting, but Smart doesn't show. Vandegrift now believes he has something solid to go on, and he's unwilling to be turned away a second time by the police. So he turns to an officer he trusts who works missing persons, Mary Wilson. Wilson works with Tony to try and find the house by driving him around the area that Tony thought the house was in, but it, it produces nothing. As fortune would have it, Tony runs him as smart again a couple days or weeks later, I'm not sure on the timeline, at the same bar he originally ran him into. Or ran into him at. Uh, Tony this time manages to get Smart's license plate as he leaves, which he turns over to Wilson. Turns out the car is not registered to Brian Smart. It's registered to Herb Baumeister. Wilson digs into Baumeister and soon finds herself arriving at the same conclusion as Vandegrift. These disappearances were the work of a single serial killer, and that killer was likely Herb. Not only that, but Tony had narrowly escaped with his life. Wilson now feels she has enough evidence to confront Herb. She meets him at the Save-A-Lot store he runs and tells him that he's a suspect in several missing person cases and asks if she can search his home. Herb refuses and even goes so far as to say, the next time you want to talk to me, don't. Talk to my lawyer. Undeterred, Wilson contacts Julie and tells her what she told her husband. Um, she hopes that this revelation will shock Julie into getting permission to search the home. However, Julie... Again, always loyal to Herb, doesn't believe the accusations and refuses. At this point, Wilson then turns to the Hamilton County judge to get a search warrant, but is turned down. Since being confronted by Wilson, Herb is emotionally falling apart. Over the next six months, his behavior his behavior becomes so erratic and the business does so poorly that Julian Herb's life is falling apart at a rapid pace. It's not long before the family is forced to file for bankruptcy. Meanwhile, Julie can't escape the haunting memory of the skull her son, her son found. The marriage finally ends, and as it does, so does Julie's loyalty to her. She tells Wilson about the skull her son found. She also gives the detective permission to search the property, while Herb is away visiting his mother with Eric. As she lets the police in, Julie calls her lawyer because she wants to make sure at least she's protected. On June 24, 1996, Wilson and three Hamilton County officers execute a search for the home. They're walking around the outside, and they spy these weird pebbles that are just strewn across the grass. So they start to examine them. And they realize pretty quickly that even though this is the same yard that the Baumeister children would go out playing all the time, Those pebbles weren't actually pebbles. They were bone fragments. They call in forensic investigators who examine the fragments and later confirm that they're actually human remains that belong to at least 11 men. The ones even matched up to four of the missing men, including Roger Goodlett, Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, and Manuel Resendez. The fuck? Now, they know... There's bodies in the yard. But remember, Herb is off at his mother's with the son, whatever age he's at now. So for the kid's safety, they don't go to the press to announce that they have a lead in this disappearance. They're like, what we need to do now is get Eric away from Herb in case Herb like freaks out and kills his kid. So they decide that the best plan of attack is that while Herb is at his mother's, they're going to get Julie to go, serve him with defor- uh, divorce papers, and tell him... I have custody of the kids, you need to give them to me. Which she does, and fortunately, Herb surrenders the kids, no issues. Uh, he's of a, a presence of mind that he figures that this is just the beginning of what's going to be a long legal battle to keep custody of the kids, so he, he doesn't think anything of it. He's like, yeah, take him, fine, whatever. In the background, now that Eric is safe, authorities are now building a picture of how Herbert uh, Herb managed to kill so many. They realized that Herb very likely met these men at a bar when they were already like drunk as shit. And then when he offered them a drink at the pool when he got tricked them back to the home, he likely drugged them. So they were really unable to fight back against being strangled. Which they think he it's how he killed them with hose that was around the pool. They like always the same way? Yeah. So his method of killing them was like drug them, trick them into like putting hose around their own neck, and then he killed them. Uh, Tony, like, in one of the sources I read, apparently was able to escape, like I said, because he refused the drink, and Tony was apparently a lot bigger than Herb was. So Herb, when Herb realized that Tony was alive, was probably like, oh, I can't fight you. So he was like, oh, you know, I I was freaked out when you passed out, so he played dumb and let let him go. Shortly after the bones are discovered, and Eric is now safe back with his mother, Authorities broadcast what they found on the news. They think that Heard saw this broadcast. They don't actually know. All we know for certain is he vanished. His body is discovered on July 3rd, inside his car at Pinery Park, Ontario, Canada. So he drove across the border. He shot himself in the head and died. He did, however, leave a three-page suicide note explaining why he killed himself. He cites the failing business, the divorce, and the loss of his kids. Nothing about murdering anyone. Over the course of the following years, Julie helps investigators figure out that uh, the I-70 murders occurred roughly at the same time, or rather, the I-70 murders and the ones that occurred at her home were linked. She provides receipts that show Baumeister had traveled I-70 during the same times that bodies were found along the interstate. So now they have concrete evidence to prove that Herb was both at these gay bars uh, later when people were going missing and they think they took him back to the home and that he was driving along I-70 when bodies were dumped there. Now authorities don't know for certain... So if he's dump- he's dumping bodies and putting them in his alarm? So he was dumping bodies before he had a home to dump them at. Remember, the body stopped showing up around I 70 in 1990. Oh, okay. They bought Foxhall Farm in 91. So okay. Herb, Herb went from dumping bodies on the highway to dumping him in this front lawn. Right. So he went from a real high risk area to a low risk area.
1: Do you know how he was able to cut them up into pebbles? No.
0: None of that's addressed. Like how he cut them up. Maybe he burned them. I don't know. None of, none of the research I found addressed the fact that. They didn't find actual skeletons besides the one that the son found, but they found pebbles. So he may have, like, burned them in his yard and then smashed the bones up with a hammer. I, I don't know. I'm, no. I'm, not, I'm not a serial killer, so... What, th- what authorities know for certain at the end of their investigation is that Herb confirmed... They can confirm that Herb killed seven men, but they believe he could have killed as many as 16
1: that's Martin. a lot, yeah. Okay, so but what about the barn and the loft over it that you were telling me about? Well, why is that so important?
0: I'm glad you asked, because now we're getting into the paranormal part of this podcast. And the barn and its loft are very, very relevant. So remember, Heard's story came to a dramatic conclusion in 1996. We're going to flash forward 10 years to 2006, when Rob and Vicki Graves decided they needed more space for themselves and their two teenage sons. They'd previously been living in a city and decided they wanted to be done with their cramped accommodations, the busy city life, and having nosy neighbors that paid attention to everything they did. So Vicky and Rob began looking to get a home out in the suburbs of uh, Indianapolis. And they buy the home, don't they? Yeah. Dumbasses. <laughs> so, like I said, they look out in Westfield in the suburbs of Indianapolis. And they begin looking at nice neighborhoods in the town when they stumble across Fox Hollow Farms. Like I said before, it's this massive, 18-acre, gorgeous, sprawling estate that was going for an unbelievably low price. They can't believe why the price is so low. But undeterred, they contact a realtor, and they ask if they can tour the house. The realtor is ecstatic. He's like, absolutely, you could. The house is owned by someone who's not living in it. Come on down, we'll set you up with a tour. So Rob and Vicky meet with the realtor at the property and go on. When they arrive, they're immediately impressed by the home. Vicky describes it as impressive in its layout and gorgeous. In addition to the massive amount of land the home sits on, the house has a huge and much boasted about 18 by 36 foot swimming pool in the basement. As they're touring the home, seeing just how big all the rooms are how impressive it is, they begin to ask themselves, how is this house this gorgeous, in such a nice area, and it's still on the market? Why is no one living here? Now Rob is really thinking about, thinking hard about this while he's touring the home. He's racking his brains because for some reason Fox Hollow Farms sounds familiar to him. He can vaguely remember hearing about Herb Baumeister and that he wants to own a home in this area. And now that he's, like, stumbled across that memory, because he knows who Herb Baumeister is, he's like, fuck, what if this is his, his old home? What if this is where all those bodies were found? So he, like, musters up his courage, and he asks the realtor, probably just to be told, no, that's, like, the house around the block. He goes, is this the place that Herb Baumeister used to live? The realtor kind of, like, sighs. He's like, yeah... Yeah, it is. That's why it's advertised at such a low price. Rob is, like, let down. He's shattered. But he's also kind of thinking to himself, "Eh, that's a long time ago. Let me see what Vicky thinks. So he grabs Vicky and the two of them step outside. And he tells her, the realtor told me this is the home that serial killer Herb Baumeister used to live in. He looks her dead in the eyes and asks her, could you live here? They're so impressed with everything else. They're willing to look past the fact that bodies used to be out in the yard. At first, she's really hesitant to answer. She tells him she doesn't know. The two leave that day and decide to talk about it when they get home. Vicky's really thinking about this and she's employed as a medical laboratory specialist. She's a woman of science. She's worked out of hospitals most of her adult life and knows that a lot of people who go to hospitals never come out alive. So she's worked at a place where people have died. She even rationalizes that many people live in homes that people have died in, often without ever knowing someone died there. She figures, well, at least we know that people have died in this home. So she comes back to her husband and she's like, yeah, I can I live there. And he's like, cool, we'll put an offer in. Um, it's accepted. So they now own Fox Hollow Farms. Vicki and Rob moved the family in, and for the first couple weeks, everything seemed just fine. Nothing spooky is going on in the home. Vicki and Rob are loving their sprawling new house, and their sons are taking full advantage of the 18 acres to roam and play. When their sons are often done playing outside, they're usually headed right for the pool to cool off. Uh, as one does when they spend their entire day roaming around the woods, the boys get muddy and track a lot of like dirt and shit into the house. Uh, and Vicky oftentimes finds herself vacuuming around the sides of the pool to clean up dirt and gravel and other shit that they bring in with them. Um, Oh, boy. They're rolling around in the bones. I'd like to point out that if it were, like, either of our parents, if we routinely made a mess... Oh, we'd be cleaning it. Yeah, we'd be cleaning it. They'd be pissed as shit. Or they wouldn't let us use it. Yeah, the pool would have either been taken away from us, or we would have been the one cleaning up after ourselves. Yeah, my sidekick would be cleaning up after us. Anyway, one, one day is downstairs. She's cleaning the pool area with a vacuum. The boys had apparently tracked in a bunch of gravel. Uh, and since most people who are getting in the pool aren't wearing shoes, so they're running around barefoot, it can't be left there. She's like, no, it's a hazard. Someone's going to step on it and hurt themselves. So she breaks up the vacuum and an extension cord so she can get all the way around the pool, plugs a vacuum into the extension cord, and she starts going to work. She's vacuuming, minding her own business, not thinking about anything. When suddenly the vacuum dies, it turns off on its own. Vicky's confused. She's like, maybe I hit the power button, maybe I moved it too quick and it pulled out from the wall. Uh, so she looks at the power button, it's still up and in the on position, So she follows the cord back to where it joins the extension cord and realizes it's unplugged. So she's like, ah, okay, I just, I pulled it too quick, undid it. So she plugs the vacuum back in and resumes cleaning. This time she says she's very careful with her movements as to make sure she doesn't accidentally unplug the cord again. She's not vacuuming for very long when suddenly it dies again. She turns and this time Uh, she's immediately expecting the culprit was that the vacuum and the extension cord had become unplugged. Sure enough, it's unplugged from the extension cable, but this time it's laying about a foot apart. So roughly the same distance as if someone had unplugged it, gone like a full width, a shoulder width apart, and then dropped it like that. She thinks that's kind of weird because if you accidentally pull a cord out, unless you do it real, real hard, It's not going to move that far away, and remember, she's being really careful with her movements. So if she had accidentally unplugged it by pushing the vacuum too far, it would have gone like what two, three inches. Not. Yeah, probably. Not a a a foot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Some weak evidence. So she thinks this
0: is really weird, Uh, but she's like, "Okay, I don't know if I didn't pull it apart again. So I'm just going to plug it back in and get back to what I was doing."
1: No, she was like I put a knot in that thing and then Yeah. In it. See, I was
0: thinking the exact same thing. Like so I watched an episode about this uh, of a TV series called Paranormal Witness, season 2 episode 8 if any of our listen- listeners want to watch it. Uh, and it looks like the extension cable only plugged into the wall and it it wasn't a cable per se. It had a cable from the wall, but the base of it was like this round thing. So she was plugging into the base of like it, was like a, it wasn't a true extension cord, it was more okay. like an extension outlet, I guess. Um, so she goes back to vacuuming, it's plugged back in, she's minding her own business. Except now she keeps finding herself like glancing over her shoulder, like looking to make sure, okay, it's still plugged in, it's still plugged in, no issues, when suddenly, without warning, the vacuum cord shoots out of the extension cable. Vicky sees it happen. She goes, it startled me. The hairs on the back of my neck just stood up. There was definitely an unsettling presence there. It felt like someone was there. It felt like someone didn't want me there. Now, it was a weird occurrence. Like, literally, she's not moving the vacuum and she sees it fly out of the extension cable. But she's, she finds a way to rationalize it. She's like, whatever. And nothing weird happens for a little while. So she's like, okay. I'm just going to not talk about it, push it in the back of my mind. Um, and while Vicky had had this experience, Rob had yet to report anything at all in the home. Uh, each day he'd get up, greet, up in his, his great new home, make the trek to the car dealership where he worked. Over the course of a few weeks, Rob notices that another employee, Joe LeBlanc, who while being a hard worker, was constantly showing up late for work. Rob one day asked him, why are you always late for work? Joe tells him he lives in over an hour away and is constantly hitting horrible traffic, so it makes it difficult for him to arrive on time. Joe says, hey, don't worry, I'm looking for a new apartment on this end of town, uh, I'm going to be moving soon. Rob gets this like brainwave. He goes, hey man, look, we have this barn, it's not attached to the house, it's got an apartment above it, why don't you come by after work today, you can take a look at it, and if you like it, it's yours. So, remember earlier you were like, why the fuck is the barn important? Alright. So, Joe does come by after work one day. He checks it out and he loves it. The 18 acres that the barn and the house sit on would be great for his dog, Fred, who in the, in the TV series is a Labrador. Uh, Like a, a yellow lab. So, yeah. he's like, man, this would be great to explore. The apartment's awesome and spacious. It's everything he wants. So, he's like, Rob yes, I'll take the place. Let me move in. And he does, shortly after. On move-in day, remember it's on the second floor, so he's hauling boxes upstairs all day. He's, he's exhausted, so he doesn't really set up much other than his bed, and crashes. Uh, but that night, he has a really horrific dream that he was running through the woods, and he's convinced that he's being chased in this dream by someone that's trying to hurt him. When he wakes up, He still has such an overwhelming feeling of dread, and that he's being chased, that he violently bursts up from the bed, and he tries to run out of the room, but he slams into a wall, knocking over a lamp, and slicing the shit out of his hand. Now, Joe manages to write it off. It's just a bad dream, so he doesn't say anything to Vicky and Rob. About a week goes by, and one day Vicky's coming home from work. And as she's getting ready to walk into the house, she spies Rob, who's outside painting the exterior wall of the home. As they're talking about the progress of the paint job and kind of like talking back and forth about how much they like the color and how well it's going to look when it's done, she notices some movement out of the corner of her eye, so she kind of turns. And just on the edge of the woods, she sees a figure in a red sweater. And she's like, uh, that's that's weird. Um, and as she kind of like turns her head to get a, to get a better view of it, the figure turns around and starts walking back into the woods and it's at that point that Vicki realizes she can't see the figures legs and it's not because they're obscured by the vegetation it's because the figure in the red sweater has no legs and as soon as this like revelation hits her like oh my god that's half of a person moving through the woods it's gone So as soon as this person disappears, she tells Rob, she goes, I just saw a dude in a red sweater walking into the woods.
1: Let's follow it?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what they did. Oh, thank God. So the two of them are, like, going to look for it. Now, remember, Vicky's a woman of science, so she's not quick to jump for the paranormal as an an explanation. She figures if I can't see half of his body, it's probably because um, it was obscured, and I just didn't notice what was obscuring it. So her and Rob, they go... To the edge of the woods and they're looking around but they can't find anything. They can't see a guy in a red sweater, they can't find footprints on the ground that would indicate that somebody had been there, uh, but undeterred, Rob was like, hey look, you know, this is this is the home of a former serial killer. We gotta come to the understanding that there's very likely going to be weird weirdos who are obsessed with serial killers, not in like a, you're a murder fan. But, like, a, you might.
1: Oh, someone wants to come visit the home.
0: Yeah. So they're like, you know, we own the, own the home of a former serial killer, so we have to expect people to show up and want to get a look at the property. Um, but to ease Vicky's state of mind, Rob promptly installs cameras on the barn facing the house, one at the front of the house, one ported towards the front door, and the other in the back of the house. Now, later in the same week, uh, Joe is up in his apartment. He's cleaning up dinner and washing some dishes when there's suddenly a knock at his door. Joe figures it's Rob or Vicky, so he yells over his shoulder, Hey, just a minute, I'm, I'm cleaning up dinner. Uh, he turns off the water and he starts toweling off his hands when the pounding on the door grows louder and more frantic. Joe swings the door open wide, but no one's there. Confused, he kind of steps out. He looks to the right, and there's just the banister for the Second floor deck. Doesn't see anyone. Looks to the left and down the stairs. Can't see anyone there either. Apparently he even steps out of the door and looks up like someone on the barn is like reaching over the top, like on the roof, and knocking on the door. But sure enough, no one's there. So Joe's like, okay, that's weird. And he gets this like eerie feeling. Like "Uh, somebody's somebody's watching me. So he's like, you know what? I had enough of this. So he goes back in the house. He locks the door. Uh, And just as he's getting ready to watch or to distract himself by watching some TV, he notices movement in the back of his apartment out of the corner of his eye. He turns around and he, in enough time, to see a figure walk from right to left and disappear into his bedroom. Joe's rattled, but he's got enough courage that he's like, I gotta go see who this is. So he tentatively approaches his bedroom and he looks inside, but there's no one there. Joe can't explain the experience but he's starting to get creeped out in a big way in his apartment. Now, he's been living there about three weeks. And so, flash forward three weeks. And Joe has developed a routine that every night, when it's clear out, you know, it's not raining or whatever, right around after dusk, he'll take Fred out and they'll go for a long walk down the driveway of the property. Now, remember, it sits on 18 acres, so it's right. a good long way. But the property itself, is, or the driveway the property itself is well lit. There are these nice lampposts that border it. So he's like, it's well lit. It's a good little trek for me and the dog. I'm still kind of freaked out about my apartment, so it gives me an excuse to leave it. So he develops the routine every night, right after dusk, to go for a walk. It's while out on one of these evening walks, Joe reports hearing a noise from the woods. Fred hears the noise too, and promptly the hackles on the back of you know, hack, his hackles raise, his ears shoot up, and he starts growling. Uh, unnerved, Joe tries to call Fred to get him to follow him back to the house. He's like, "I heard the noise too, boy. Let's get the fuck out of here." But Fred won't move. He's fixated on some point in the woods. Uh, and it's at that like Joe follows yeah, I'd be his, freaking out. Joe falls Fred's gaze, and he sees a figure in a red shirt standing on the edge of the woods. As soon as, like, Joe's eyes are on the figure, it turns and takes two steps before disappearing from view. Without warning, Fred bolts towards the figure and soon is lost out of sight, too. Joe is terrified, but he's a good person who knows he's got to go get his dog. So he fires up the flashlight he carries, turns that bitch on, and real carefully starts to make his way out of the woods. He's scanning left and right, like, frantically. Probably shaking a little bit. Yeah, I'd be freaking out f- uh, if
1: Ruga did that to me. Oh boy!
0: <sighs> yeah, if well, I and mean, she did do that to me last week.
1: Yeah, but in the dark too, and you're scared as shit, and you think you saw someone. That's a whole nother that's game. a whole
0: other ball game. So Fred is he's doing he's doing his the good work of a dog hunter. He's going out in the woods. He's looking around. And it's at that point that this narrow beam of light settles on the figure in the red shirt again. Except this time, the figure looks as if he's in agonizing pain, like he's terrified for his life. Then he vanishes. Joe is scared as fuck. But he pulls himself together enough to find Fred and run back to the house. Where the fuck was Fred? Somewhere in the woods. like The same
1: spot by the red sweater guy? Or he was roughly
0: in the area of the red sweater guy, yeah.
1: Damn. Keep that dog close, man.
0: Yeah, keep the dog on a leash. Yeah. The, the next day, Joe is convinced he's got to tell Rob and Vicky about it. But he doesn't feel super comfortable telling Rob because he works with Rob and he doesn't want Rob to think like, He's going nuts and tell other people at the office. So he approaches Vicky and tells her what he saw. She's immediately relieved because now she knows that it's not just her who's seen this figure. So she tells him, hey, I saw it too. I saw the same figure. But remember, she's a woman of science. And so she's very rationally minded. But now two people have seen a figure who disappears from sight. And now... She's got nothing scientifically to explain where this guy came from. A couple nights later, Joe is awoken by a pounding at his door. Joe, he's groggy. He just woke up. He's like, Hey, who's there? But nobody answers. Meanwhile, the pounding is increasing in tempo and each knock is getting harder. Joe's not immediately scared. He's pissed. Like, who the fuck wakes me up in the middle of the night? Who's beating on my door this hard? Who doesn't have the common decency to tell me who you are? Like, why are you beating on my door? So he storms across his apartment. And he's like, who the fuck is there? Who the fuck is there? And he's like getting louder and louder as the pounding gets louder and louder. Uh, Joe's not really super keen to answer the door. There's no people. So he puts his hand on the door. And he says that he can feel the door itself shuddering under the hit, Like he can feel the wood bending. He summons his courage and fucking opens the door. Flings it wide open. No one's there. That's when Joe glances over to the home where Rob and Vick are. He's like, maybe it's one of the kids playing a prank. They're beating on the door. They're fucking with me. He figures if he can see lights on in the home, he'll know they're there. But they're not. No one's home. I believe uh, in the Paranormal Witness episode that I watched, uh, Rob even says the family at this time was actually coming back from dinner. Like they'd gone indie, into Indianapolis to have dinner at a fancy Italian restaurant, and they were late getting back. So no one's on the property. As Joe's kind of looking around back and forth for like anywhere someone could hide hid to fuck with him, he notices that the metal door knocker on his door is standing straight out. And as he's his eyes settle on it, it swings back and knocks one final time. So it was like someone he couldn't see was sitting there and holding the knocker up about to knock again. And when they, Joe noticed they were looking at him, they dropped the knocker. Hmm. Joe... He sees this, he's freaked out, he runs back inside, locks the door behind him. Back in the safety of his home, Joe is thinking to himself, that's weird, but thank God, at least it's over. That's when he notices that Fred is peering around the corner of his bedroom and is staring daggers at the door. Joe studies the door and he notices that the handle on the doorknob is slowly turning. Now it's an old doorknob. And it's got these nasty, old, rusted springs in it. So you can hear this, like as it's turning. And it's turning slowly, like someone's trying to not be noticed. It slowly twists one way, and then it twists another, and then it snaps back. And nothing happens for a second. Boom! The door flies open with such force that the lock, the deadbolt in the door, shatters the frame. Wood fragments are flying everywhere. Joe rushes back through the open doorway and he looks around, but no one is there. Just as he turns to go back into his apartment, he sees a man standing there who looks as if he's in utter terror. Joe is shocked. But just as soon as the man appears, he vanishes. Joe, at this point in the TV show, is like, I'm convinced that the person I just saw was a victim of Herb's and he was trying to warn me. He was trying to like, tell me, get out of here. You will die. The next day, Joe tells Vicky about what he experienced. The ongoing haunting motivates the two of them to look more into Herb's case and find out the names of some of his victims. They're able to acquire some photos of the men from the local paper that Herb is believed to have killed. As they're looking through this stack of photographs, Joe stops Vicky and goes, that one, right there. That was the man I saw in my apartment. A few days go by. Joe is understandably feeling really uncomfortable in his apartment. So he finds himself spending more and more time run, wandering the woods of the property with Fred. <clears throat> it's on one such excursion that Joe stumbles across a human bone. Now, I remember earlier, there were over 5,500 bone fragments on the property that were uncovered during the investigation, right? Right. One of the uh, Harris County detectives even said that it was likely that even though they found that many bone fragments, there were others. So it's not uncommon for Joe to have stumbled across one. He finds this bone fragment, he's like, it's definitely human. But the odd part about this bone fragment, or this bone, is A, it's not a fragment, and B, it was left open in plain sight. Like, if the investigators had combed through the area as extensively as they did, they shouldn't be able to see it. But Joe just stumbles across it. And when he does, Joe says he felt like he was meant to find the bone. Like, one of Herb's victims may have even led him to the location. So, he he turns the bone over to the police, and they test it, and they're like, yeah, it's definitely human, but we can't tell you who it belongs to. So, they, they have an idea of how many people Herb could have killed. Maybe it was as high as 16, but now it's starting to look like there were more people on the property than even they thought before. Joe is like, okay, well, if it was a victim that wanted me to find the bone, uh, then maybe, now that I found it, like, the terror is done. Like, I'm, I'm past it. Everything is fine. Well, one day, uh, Rob and Vicki are out doing something. And so, Joe's kind of in charge of, of watching the kids. And they're like, hey, let's go swimming. And Joe's like, yeah, rad. Let's do it. Uh, And so Joe calls his buddy Jeremy, and he's like, you know, I know Jeremy's really been like, he wants to see the house, he wants to see the pool, I'll invite him over. So he invites his friend Jeremy over, and the four of them are swimming in the pool. And while Joe is in one part of the pool, separate from the other three people, he explains that he feels this force, like invisible hands are closing around his neck, and trying to suffocate him while they're trying to also at the same time drag him under the water. Joe is like thrashing under the water. He's like, oh, like trying to get these invisible hands off. He's fighting and clawing, and just as suddenly as the hands appear, they disappear. And Joe shoots to the surface, and his buddy Jeremy looks over at him. He's like, "Hey, man, you all right?" And Joe's like, "No, something just tried to drown me." And the way Jeremy describes the frantic look on Joe's face, he's like, "Nobody can fake that. Nobody was making that up." So Jeremy really believes that Joe had had that experience. It's about a week after that event in the pool where Joe is now sitting alone once again in his apartment.
1: This thing really does not like Joe.
0: Yeah. Well, remember, Herb preyed on... white men of a certain build. And I think this has been... He's matching it. He's matching it. That's, That's my thought process, okay? But also... It's kind of odd, like, if, if this thing, whatever it is, is preying on Joe. Like, who was the only murderer on the property? Herb, right? Yeah. Like, well, Herb shot himself at a park in Canada.
1: Not even on the property.
0: So, yeah. that, that So,
1: maybe it's, uh... Shit. Well, think about this, dude. Okay. All the time in Supernatural, people had... Objects? Objects that tied him. To places. Maybe there's some object still in the house, or maybe it is even the house itself
0: that that could very that could be very likely. Or yeah. possession. Yeah, the supernatural points. Uh, pretty good. Like, yeah, it could have been. It could have exactly been what it was. So, like I said, Herb He's sitting in the apartment. He's alone. He's just trying not to be freaked out. Trying not to jump at any weird noises. When he hears something. That no matter how he tries to rationalize it, he knows is not natural. And it's this metallic scraping noise coming from his kitchen. He's scared, but he's also confused. I think his curiosity to figure out what the noise was overwhelms his fear. So he kind of like tentatively moves into the kitchen. And he notices immediately that his knife block, where he keeps all his knives is suddenly devoid of all knives. There's nothing in it. And he looks around the room, and he finds his knives, and they're all now in the sink, but they're laid out sequentially from, like, biggest to smallest in his sink. And he's like, that's fucking weird. Yeah. And he's looking around the room, and he notices on the wall there's suddenly deep, Scratches like someone was dragging a knife along his wall that had not been there before Now in Joe's own words, he he says something to the effect of like I've seen paranormal shows before so I know that at this point you break out a voice recorder so he He's like alright, I got a good one on my phone. I'm gonna use that But before he hits record he's got the presence of mind that he runs around his apartment closing windows he turns off all the fans, turns off the AC, he even turns off the fridge so it can be dead quiet in the apartment. So there can be no chance for an external noise or, because remember they're on 18 acres, there's not likely going to be like passing traffic or any of that shit. So he turns off everything in his apartment so the only thing that should be making noise is him. He's got a sterilized environment. He grabs his phone, he hits record on it, and then he goes into his kitchen and he starts asking the empty room question. He goes, is anyone here with me right now? There's no answer. And Joe even admits, he's like, you know, at this point, I feel pretty foolish asking questions to thin air. But he presses on. He goes, is anyone here? Joe hears nothing with his ears. And after a while of getting no answers and asking repeated questions, he stops trying to record anything, grabs his phone, and goes over to his computer, plugs it into his computer, uh, and he downloads the audio file. Sure enough, when Joe listens to this with the audio enhanced, he catches something. Now, I don't want to tell you what it is, I want you to listen to it yourself and tell me what you think you heard in reply. Alright, play it for me. Alright, so here is the audio file of what he captured. The response. Who keeps walking in the kitchen? What'd you, what'd you hear? I do. Alright, I'm going to play it for you again. Could you hear the voice really clearly? Yeah. Alright, here it is again. Response. Who keeps walking in the kitchen? Anything different?
1: Sounds like I do.
0: Okay, it sounds like I do. Alright.
1: Is that what you were thinking?
0: No. I mean I listened to this about fifteen times. So really? I can I can very clearly hear the response going the married one. So we'll listen okay, to it. Okay, let
1: me play let me hear it again. Let me let me see if I pick that up
0: response. Who keeps walking in the kitchen?
1: I don't know. I, I think I do fits better.
0: You think I do fits better? Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: I don't know. Maybe our listeners can decide whatever they think, but I feel like I was hearing I do in that. I do? Yeah. The, the
0: problem, I, I can understand uh, why you hear something different. Uh, because I knew roughly what the response was when I heard it the first time. Um, oh, it tells you. Well, I mean, I was watching the video, and it says, like in the video, in like subtitles, as the audio is being recorded, you can hear, like it spells it out like the married one. Uh, but what's like almost a detriment to that little audio clip is the fact that there's rustling in the background. Like Joe is clearly moving things from hand to hand. So it almost like shrouds the actual answer and response. But Joe is like, I heard the married one. He's very, very positive. He fucking turns the audio way up on his computer. Like he's got speakers attached to it, which when I listen to it, I freaking crank that bitch because I wanted to be sure it wasn't just confirmation bias. Like someone told me I'd hear the married one, so I heard it. So I shut my eyes because it, like as the wor- words are said in the video, they appear on the screen. So I shut my eyes and I turned the audio way, way up on a sound bar I plugged the computer into, and I just listened with my eyes closed. And I definitely hear the married one. Let me hear it again. Okay, let's do that. Because Joe is convinced that's what he hears as well. He, he's the one who's putting forward, I hear the, the married one. So here it is again. Response. Who keeps walking in the kitchen?
1: I guess I can kind of hear that.
0: I can hear that. Joe thinks he heard the married one too. So he's like, okay, one of Herb's victims was married. I can look in because he's got all these pictures of his victims. He can figure out who it is. So he goes through all of them. <clears throat> None of them are married. The only married person that lived on the property is Herb. Which I feel like is a fucking cosmic cheat code. Like they tell you in Catholic school, like, you do bad shit, you go to hell. This guy killed maybe 16 people. He's not in hell. He's still fucking terrorizing people. That's bullshit. Now, would you say that you could tell the tone and the tempo and the demeanor of the voice? Tone,
1: temper, and demeanor. Like, well, at it least. It sounded to be he... kind of calm.
0: Well, could you tell that voice apart from someone else's, like Joe's, for instance, in that video? Yeah. Okay.
1: Joe's sounded definitely deeper and closer. Right. The other one sounded fainter and.
0: Wait, the recorded like voice? Like,
1: quickly said, but like, calmly said.
0: So I have a video of her when he was alive. Speaking in a camera. And I want to get your input here because I want you to tell me if the voice that Joe captured on the EVP matches Herb's. All oh, right, let me hear it. All right. Uh, I will in a second, but it's important to note that this newsreel that Herb got captured in was when he was an adult and he took a picture of a dead raccoon that the state agency, whatever one's responsible for painting lines on the highway, had painted over the dead raccoon on the side of the road. And he was fixated with it. He was like, oh, there's a dead raccoon covered in paint. I remember from his childhood, he's fixated with death. Yeah. So here's Herb being interviewed about these photographs that he took. I might be <laughs> you know, whatever. Herb Baumeister of Carmel saw it all. I... Said to my son, they're gonna get a raccoon with a spray gun, and sure enough they just swipe right over his face and I didn't even move but you know, bit, you know no one to you know, get it out of the way. Okay, now that you've heard that, I'm gonna go back to the voice recording and we're gonna listen to it one more time, and I want you to tell me if you can hear if those voices, the one that was captured and the one that I've heard just speaking, match. Response. Who keeps walking in the kitchen? again
1: they do sound very close right yeah right that's pretty creepy
0: I think that's a, a first for drunkenly paranormal that I was actually able to compare an EVP with an actual recording of the ghost that people think it is
1: there's got to be a scientific way to like back that shit up. there is
0: but I don't have access to that kind of technology. Dude, I wonder if anyone has ever done that. They can, they can, what, well, like on a podcast? I don't no, no, a podcast, but
1: just in, sorry, not a podcast, but just in real life, like taking that recording of him in that video and maybe so taking there is, some deep actual the house.
0: There is an actual subgenre of science where they do that. They can analyze voices and like your, how you put emphasis on words and your tremor, and they can go, yeah, this voice matches this one.
1: All right, well, all I'm going to say is if we need some EVPs of recordings of this guy, Herb, listen up. Sponsors, hook us up because yeah. we're ready. We're, we are two
0: white men who will go investigate this this thing. And,
1: and I'll tell you what, we won't be sober. Just kidding. We probably will.
0: No, we won't. Wait, maybe we will.
1: Whatever you want. If you want us to be drunk, we'll do a drunk. You tell us. You're spo- you're the sponsor. Yeah, you you guys are paying for this thing. We'll represent you.
0: So this EVP experience is the last straw for Joe. He moves out not long after this. I'm not sure how long. They don't specify. And it's not long after Joe is like, fuck this place, I'm gone. That Rob and Vicky are also kind of like, time to go. Uh, so they put the home up for sale. I don't think anyone buys it. Uh, but they try to sell it. And as of July of 2020, which was the last date I could find where the property was still advertised, it is still up for sale. How much is it? Uh, it's like $2.5 I think. I don't know. I, I, I may be pulling that number out of my ass.
1: You should have looked that up because I'll be buying that in a heartbeat.
0: Uh, well... I, once I saw the date on the post where it was like July 2020, I was like, oh, it's over a year and a half ago. It can't still be up for sale, right? So I didn't really think to click on it, but mm-hmm. I, I, I should have. So the last piece of evidence in this case that I have for you, and I know I kind of blended evidence in with the story I was telling, uh, was during uh, an investigation performed by the Wraith Hunters of Ohio. They're using an SLS camera, which is, for those who are not familiar... Is a camera that effectively uses infrared dots to map uh, shapes of the human body. Uh, they're in the pool area where Herb is believed to have killed many of his victims, and they're talking about the crimes that Herb committed. At one point, they asked the room if there's anyone willing to come out and show themselves. Uh, while they're talking, the SLS captures a figure. Now the backdrop is completely black, but it's angled towards the pool. And the first figure they capture appears to the investigators uh, as if he were sitting on the side of the pool and struggling. You can see an arm moving back and forth and what looks like a leg kick out, like someone's trying to fight. Out of the pool? Yeah. As if someone is like trying to fight someone strangling them from behind. So they're kicking their leg erratically like they're suffocating and they're it looks like their right arm is trying to strike at someone behind them But it looks like the figure is seated on the edge of the pool. Can I see this? Yes I'm just explaining for the viewers at home what we're about to watch as they capture the figure They continue to ask it questions One investigator claims to hear knocks and voices in response, but none of this is like audible in the video Um. We'll just we're just I'm gonna I'm gonna turn over to the video here and uh, let Harlem take a look at it. So it's that last link I've provided for you, and I want to start it at one minute and twenty nine seconds when the figure first appears. And it's important to note that with a lot of SLS camera footage that's captured for paranormal investigation, the figure they find is not. There for very long. It's there briefly and it disappears. But this one is there for I believe about five minutes, five five and a half minutes. It doesn't go away. Do you have it queued up or you at one twenty nine? Yeah, ready. What are you seeing? So you can you can see the figure. This right? is in the pool. This is like so they're angling towards the edge of the pool, and I want you to like you know how you sit on the side of the pool with your feet dangling in the water. Yeah. That's roughly where the camera angle is. So they can see a figure sitting on the side of the pool, and its right hand is, looks like it's trying to strike at somebody behind him, while one of its legs is kicking out like someone would do if they were thrashing and suffocating and trying to fight for air.
1: Dude, I'm not going to lie. If you look closely at this guy's camera, if you look at that red part, if you get if you look real close... It almost looks like there's two different heads going on.
0: I like that you say that. Because it...
1: Like, right behind his, almost.
0: So roughly at 6 minutes and 36 seconds into this video, the SLS camera captures a second figure. It's not there for very long... But
1: at which part?
0: Six minutes and thirty-six seconds.
1: Okay, I'm to fast forward. Is that right before or is that right on
0: it? Right. I would go six thirty four. I think that I think I timestamped it a little premature. No, I was right on money. Six thirty six. That's where it shows up. So you can see a second figure appear to the left of the first.
1: Yeah, but that doesn't line up at all. Another victim?
0: Another victim is what they're thinking. So what you can't hear in the audio, it's two women that are investigating this, and they're becoming increasingly emotional. They're talking about some pretty graphic stuff. They're talking about the murder, so it's very understandable that they're getting worked up. They're like, oh. They're, they're telling the victim, or what they think is a victim, the stick figure that's thrashing around is like, looks like it's trying to fight off someone strangling them from behind. They're like, keep fighting, keep fighting. We're sorry this happened. Keep fighting, keep fighting. And the woman holding the SLS camera is like breaking down in tears. And right about the six minute mark, she hands, or the six minute, 30 second mark, she hands the camera off to the other woman. And she's like, I gotta go outside. I gotta have a smoke. I'm too emotional right now. And that's when the second figure appears. And it still continues throughout the entire video. Like until the video dude. ends, it's a seven-minute video. It appeared at one minute in what? What was my initial timestamp? Uh, one thirty-four. One one twenty-nine. So from one minute and twenty-nine seconds, dude. I'm going say is to seven minutes and seven seconds. There's a figure that is captured on the SLS camera.
1: Hang on, I think I saw something a little weird. Okay, from one thirty-four. 134. It looks like his left arm, maybe, is going up the whole time, right? And okay. then all of a sudden, it, it's like a boom, a downward direction to his, like, genitals. His like, arm. his right arm is already there, so maybe he's getting... Oh, uh, so what? Think about think about what's taking place. The with autoerotic... The fix- yeah. Fix- yeah so but watch. Boom, right there. there. Okay, look at, like, go from 209 to 211. Okay,
0: hold on. Two oh nine, all right, I'm there. the The second hand comes out.
1: Yes. Is that what you're look, boom! You see it? It goes right to his fucking area, dude. And then watch what happens to his arm after.
0: It's yanked back up. No, it's yanked. To and the now side. it's down. It's a few his... seconds
1: later. It's down.
0: So look, to you, does it look like someone was trying to restrain him as he's being choked? Because look at how the arm is now pinned at its side and at a downward angle. Like someone's using their free hand to hold his his other hand down.
1: It looks like his body is almost turned. He may have been. No, yeah. so it's like he's kind of pointing his body away and he's behind him.
0: Yeah, he may have been. Look, like his
1: body's like turning.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great observation. Like, I didn't notice that the first time I watched this video, so. Uh, well, I, unfortunately, man... I'm out of evidence. That's the whole story. So now, considering what we know about Herb's background, the people he killed and targeted, well, we know that he dumped a lot of people at the home, we compared the EVP that was caught to an actual voice recording of his voice, and we watched the SLS camera, which, as I said before, most figures that are caught on SLS cameras are very brief before they either, like, move across the room, or they disappear entirely, which to me suggests a false positive. This one's there for over, like, fucking five minutes. Are you leaning towards, we're drunk, or do you think that Fox Hollow Farms is actually paranormal? I'm
1: gonna go with paranormal, man. Just with the evidence, with the stick figure video, the... Audio recordings, just some of the creepy stories and how they had, like, two different perspectives and came together, I don't know.
0: So before I give you my answer, what, in your opinion, was the most compelling thing that convinced you this is actually paranormal?
1: Probably the stick figure thing. The stick figure thing? Yeah, paired with maybe the audio and the stories about how the door bursted open and nobody's there. Yeah. Like. Something's going on. And then he turned around and he sees someone with like a look on their face.
0: of Sheer terror.
1: Yeah, so clearly that's like the moment before they died and they're stuck in some kind of a death loop maybe.
0: Like that one episode of Supernatural? Yeah. Ghost, ghost (laughs) Uh Yeah, man. I don't disagree. I think this is 100% paranormal.
1: I would love the opportunity to do like some I would paranormal be investigating in this. Yeah. I
0: would be ecstatic to, to investigate this place. And I know the whole house is really, really big, but based off of Joe's testimony and knowing where most of the murders occurred was in the pool house, I would just I would spend all my time in those two rooms. Yeah. Yep.
1: Definitely have some heavy recordings going on there. You know what would be cool is if we gave like a podcast about where we were gonna investigate and then we investigate it. And then oh, we'll talk I, about our findings after. Come on, sponsors.
0: Yeah, we're, we're definitely uh, trying to do that. Uh, as I was telling Harlan before we started recording, uh, we, we've been taking some of our own money and investing in things like cameras and millimeters, and we were talking about whether or not we were going to buy Rempods next or an SLS camera. Uh, because we want to get out there. We want to get in the field. We want to podcast While we investigate, we want to bring the paranormal to you. And if you liked what you heard tonight, I think this is only the... I'm not doing this enough justice, but this was only the third paranormal. uh, We've probably both had. We've probably both had.
1: Did you say you were paranormal? Yeah, I did say paranormal.
0: I was convinced by the voice I heard, and then I compared it to Herb's voice, and I thought they were the same. Yeah, that was pretty damn convincing. That was convincing as hell. Yeah. but if, if you like what you're listening to, you want more of it. You want a higher quality. We're, you know, we're, we're funding this all on our own right now. We're doing the best we can to deliver high-quality content under the circumstances. Uh, but if you know if you want to get involved in the podcast, you want a shout-out, we can give you a shout-out. Hit up our Patreon at patreon.com slash drunkenlyparanormal. If you have a case you want us to look into, shoot it to us at drunkenlyparanormal gmail.com. Guys, we love doing this. We want to keep making it better and better for you.
1: And we want to put your beer or liquor name out there for our listeners. We
0: do. We will drink the hell out of whatever. If there's an alcohol company that wants to sponsor one of these podcasts or maybe even an investigation, we are so down. We will drink the shit out of it and sing praises to you for the rest of our lives. But guys, that's the end of our podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. This was a long episode. But as always, I have to remind you, please don't drink and drive. And Harlem,
1: always remember to stay fucked up.
0: Thanks, guys.